Hey, Sam. Hey, Teresa. What's up? <laughs> Just getting rained on. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, Walking the dog in the rain. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so for today's episode, we are going to be interviewing director Sazy Seely on her new debut film, Lucky Grandma, over a cup of apple cider vinegar. Great, let's get started. So for today's drink, I've chosen apple cider vinegar, and to some, this may seem like a disgusting choice. To others, it may also seem like a... <laughs> To others, it may also seem like a disgusting choice, but thankfully, my good friend Trader Joe's has made a drinkable version of apple cider vinegar. Today we have the flavor cucumber and mint. Um, honestly, I like the strawberry one better. I drink it um, maybe once a day, take a little sip, convince myself mm. it's flushing the detox out of my body. Um, felt inspired by our kombucha episode to try another seemingly healthy drink. But, you know, I'm no health expert, so don't quote me on that. Yeah, I mean, I can't say I liked it at all. (laughs) (laughs) I think people go way too far to be healthy nowadays. The healthiest thing you can drink is water. Why drink something? This applies to kombucha slightly, because I guess some people actually like kombucha. But if you want to be healthy, drink water, you know? There's too much going on with these apple cider vinegars and these like green juices just drink some water that's what's best for you i love how half of this show revolves around drinks and now you're just throwing it all down the drain no i'm throwing there's a category of drinks that's going down the drain Mm. it's any drink that people don't drink because they like how it tastes Mm, that's true i mean i used to never drink This is gross. I used to never drink water when I was oh, young because yeah. I hated how it tasted. Uh, I just hated that it didn't taste like anything. I was like, this is a waste of my That's time. That's how I feel about LaCroix. I Ooh, promise facts, you. Facts. I agree. To all the Two Virgins fans out there, we solemnly swear never to have LaCroix never. as our drink. Never. Never. Not only do we hate the LaCroix culture, but it's just overall underwhelming and anyone who likes LaCroix as a personality trait is a red flag. Does I don't feel like LaCroix exists. Like I don't remember the last time I saw LaCroix. Corporate corporate America. I feel like once like White Claw came around, people were like, <laughs> why drink LaCroix? Just straight up substituting <laughs> it in the middle of the day. Well, I'm super excited for today's episode. Mm-hmm. Um Sazie Seely's movie Lucky Grandma um really hit home for me and I already said this before, but it is really just energetic and exciting and also culturally in tune with um, Asian culture. And I think that what really struck me about this film is it revolves around, you know, like a, a grandma, an Asian grandma, and it doesn't paint her as a victim, but rather a bad, badass hero. Yeah, I really loved Lucky Grandma as a film. Just it's definitely the most beautiful film I've seen this year in terms of the color palette chosen and in terms of the way that shots are arranged. And it definitely comes from kind of a photographer's eye, which I feel like is a little rare to see. And just especially the locations and the way that 
um, Stacey Seeley paces the film really stuck with me and are something that I'll remember for the rest of the year for sure. Stacey Seeley is a director based out of New York City. Um, before being a director, she studied photography as well as writing and performing with sketch comedy troupe The Fifth Humor. She has screened her films at the Smithsonian Institute and has twice been awarded the Short Filmmaking Prize at the Tribeca Film Festival. She also has had numerous grants from the Sundance Institute, Film Independent, and the New York State Council of the Arts. And this year she released virtually her debut film, Lucky Grandma. So with that, we're just going to call Sazie Seeley on right now. Hello. Hello. How are y'all doing? We're doing good. We're actually in different locations right now. I'm in Philadelphia and Sam is still in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. What about you? Where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm in Brooklyn. So in New York. I've been here for the long haul. We went from really? the hot spot to now we're like ahead. I think we're not like number one. I think Maine has like the lowest <laughs> number of people. <laughs> I know. We should all be living in Maine right now. But. Yeah, so we can kind of give you a little rundown of the podcast. Basically, we started this podcast because we don't feel like there is a ton of media outlets that, um, like, really give a voice to people in our generation. Like, there's a lot that try to, like, speak for us, but mm-hmm. not a lot that, like, speak to other college students. So, and we both watched your film and absolutely loved it. So we just had some Aww. questions about that and would love to share your film and anything you have to say about the film to our audience. Our first question was, how did it feel to release the film digitally? And do you feel like you're missing out on that in-person experience or has the digital release been good for you? Well, it's been pretty freaking weird, I would say, but I think most things uh, this year have been pretty freaking weird. So it's not really an exception, right? The whole thing has been borderline surreal. Um, But I think it's like a mixed bag. So on one hand, I mean, as a filmmaker, you love the big screen, right? I grew up watching movies. I love cinema. Like I like going to movies. I would like die to go to a movie theater right now. Uh, Yeah, I would. So there's that. And there's always like, it's, I always think the viewing experience for the audience is better, like on the big screen. And, you know, you kind of miss that sort of communal thing, especially because it's a comedy where, you know, people laugh together and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and um and I like doing the Q&A's in person or they're always like interesting and it's also but it's also been kind of hilarious and like funny because like you know we did this like red carpet zoom like basically (laughs) I've just been doing media interviews from my apartment my bedroom in my apartment it's like the most unglamorous thing (laughs) ever you're like where my red carpet outfit was basically only red carpet from the waist up (laughs) and then I was like yeah and like we had fake you know virtual backgrounds and I'm like this is this is not exactly what I pictured when I pictured Mm -hmm. the premiere for my first film but it's okay um but on the other hand I think that one and we're getting released in more cities than we would have normally Mm. um we had like a 30 city indie release planned for August which uh, is pretty good for an indie, you know, anything outside of New York and LA is like pretty good. Um, But we've been able to play in way more cities than that. And also the box office pressure is is like not as um, much because, uh, you know, normally like a little indie art house cinema can maybe play two films at a time. 
And so if you don't perform the first weekend, they'll change out because there's like a limit on the number of physical screens. But because it's virtual screens, um, there's, uh, they can program many more movies and, you know, there can be like a longer tail for the film. Um, so that's kind of nice. And, you know, overall, I really, you know, we felt it was important to do this because no one has any idea what's happening in August if movie theaters are going to be open or not. And this was also a way for us to support Indian art house theaters. You know that everything that the Kino Marquis program or the Alamo Draft House is doing, it's 50% goes to the actual theater. Um, and so we thought that that was really important. Like, I was really bummed that the, my local theater that I grew up with in Charlotte, North Carolina, is called The Manor, has been around for like 45 years or something crazy. Um, but anyway, they closed because of COVID. They went out of business. Like, uh, I know. It was like the theater that I first saw Pulp Fiction in. Stop. Wait, wait. I just have to turn yeah. my camera. Sorry. Pulp Fiction is my favorite movie ever. And um, there's Aww. a <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just had to give yes. a shout out. Thank you for shouting out that movie right now. <laughs> well, you feel my pain. I was my... like, when the man are closed, I was like, what the? This sucks you know especially because that whole like indie film ecosystem I feel like is so fragile right right like the film festivals the theaters like the audience it's not we're not talking Hollywood blockbusters we're talking about like the people who keep film culture alive so I was happy that we were able to support the theaters in whatever way that we could mostly sure. it's weird I just do the Q&A's for my bedroom yeah like um going back to like I guess like indie releases um I think one thing that struck me about your film is like as like an Asian American woman I rarely see Asian American films or just like Asian films that feel fresh but also mm -hmm. like culturally in tune and I think a large part of that it's it's difficult to get like backing or funding for those sorts of films and I was just wondering like how did you because this was your debut film too how did you pitch it and get actual like funding behind I feel like like what most people would consider like a niche more niche like film topic yeah well totally well it's definitely I think been a very long road and we were very lucky so when we first wrote the script and we were trying to get funding I mean it was not it was not an easy sell I mean first of all it stars an old lady <laughs> and nobody, yeah. nobody wants to make movies about old women they're like what she's not hot anymore I don't understand <laughs> and you know and then she's like Asian and an immigrant and they were like and you want to make the movie mostly in Chinese uh and this was pre-crazy rich Asians so mm -hmm. it was definitely a hard sell and we we really just got lucky um it's really was a kind of a real Cinderella story basically the Tribeca Film Institute had this grant that they um that was financed by money from AT&T to like make you know basically one movie a year like a small budget movie um, and we, they were looking for quote unquote untold stories, which basically is anything that's like not mainstream really. Mm -hmm. Um, so it could be like about women, it could be about minorities, it could be about an immigrant community, mentally ill people, I don't know, like whatever kind of off topic you want to, you want to do. And, you know, we were able to win the grant. It was sort of like a mini hooped process. It was kind of like Shark Tank. Yeah. <laughs> but for filmmakers, it was very bizarre. Like, we had to do our pitch and stuff in front of a celebrity jury. There were, like, many rounds of stuff. 
but um, you know, they gave us a million dollars to make the movie. So it was really uh, a Cinderella story. We're very, very lucky. Um, but yeah, especially because, you know, I've always, like, I like all kinds of movies and I'm pretty political personally, but like in terms of my movies, I'm not so much exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's like, I wanted to make a movie about an old, like immigrant, like woman living in Chinatown that wasn't like, I don't know, like feeling sorry for her or mm -hmm. like, I don't know, just like, I feel like you see, you hear that subject and you're like, oh, that movie's going to be fucking depressing. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and I wanted to make something that was more of a celebration and that was like fun and kind of badass and that like made her like a hero and not like an object of pity. Yeah. I don't know. Um, that makes sense. And I think that only now in recent years, I mean, you guys could tell me if you agree. I feel like it's only really recently in terms of like American cinema, not like world cinema, but like the US like indie scene where like there are enough, there's enough of a critical mass sort of bubbling up like of, I guess, different, I guess you would say minority or diverse voices where there's kind of room for all kinds of stories. I mean, I feel like 15 years ago, like every black film was about slavery. And you're like, <laughs> that's not like the only story that you can tell about black America, you know? Mm -hmm. And like the only story that you can tell about like Asian Americans is not like, I don't know, some sad like immigrant tale. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot in between and many, many, many different shades um, of whatever, right? So. I feel like excited that that's happening now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I'm like really, have you guys been watching I May Destroy You? Stop. Oh my God. You're hitting the nail on the head. I literally just binged the whole series like yesterday up until the oh point. Oh my God. It is amazing. The, it's really amazing. Yeah. Because it hits on the nuances. And I think that that's something that your film also does very well. It's, it's like relatable without saying things like, when you think that you're the only one who's experienced it, but you're not, mm -hmm. but it's not like overly dramatic, you know? Yeah. Like, it's not like didactic in any way. It's very like nuanced and so much gray and yeah, it's really like fresh. I think that show is kind of badass. Oh my. That's my like new obsessions. That's why I had to yes. talk about it. I was yes. like, <laughs> and, yeah. the, and the soundtrack too. Tierra oh, yeah, Whack. the music is awesome. Yes. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know I've been like wondering I'm like has anybody put it on Spotify yet you know how people make those playlists yeah. on Spotify from like the shows with the good soundtracks yeah <laughs> no they should because as a young person I feel like we often look for that in movies we're like what's the soundtrack like that's oh, how you nice. know if it's fresh or not like if they're in tune with your yeah. generation I guess kind of going into more of the themes of the film um we both noticed this theme of forgiveness that seemed to carry all the way through and we were wondering, how do you think about forgiveness and why did you make the characters in the story so willing to forgive each other's mistakes? Hmm. I, I'm not even sure if I've thought about it in that way, if I've done that on purpose. I mean, I do think that in life, in general, everything would be a little bit better if we gave each other the benefit of the doubt. True. <laughs> Most of the time. Um, and I think especially with family and, and things like that, most I think most people are not ill-intentioned I don't think you know most of the time it comes from bad behavior comes from you know necessity 
or an emotional need or I don't know, impulse. And I don't know. I think people are willing to forgive and if they can, I don't know, I guess it's worthy. That's not a very good answer. I just, I don't know if I, I think about it that way consciously. You mean the end sort of of the movie? Is that what you kind of mean with her family? And they all kind of came back together, but also I thought it was interesting that you saw that like grandma and David's relationship had been like pretty severely altered by it. So I was wondering how forgiveness kind of fits into that. Yeah, well, yeah, we debated that a lot because he definitely, she definitely put his life in danger, ah! and we were like, like, how would his parents feel about that? Is that, you know, and we kind of debated. I mean, I was, like, taking a little bit of license to be like, oh, I, her parents will, his parents will forgive her, or, like, you know, they'll kind of brush that over the, under the rug. Um, mainly, I guess, because maybe I would I guess I would forgive my mom if she did that, or I don't know. Um, and with David, you know, and their relationship changing, I think that, I think that they're going to get over that. I think that there's definitely some bruising still from, from that experience, but you know, (laughs) some minor scarring. I think in the end, she didn't mean to put him in that situation. You know, it's not like an abusive situation where Mm -hmm. she is the, the perpetrator. Um, and she, you know, was willing to sacrifice herself for him to save him. And I think that he'll eventually be able to see that. I think he's just like a little tender right now. Yeah, something else that I thought your film did really well was that I thought the shots were very beautiful. And also it was like funny, which is rare because I'm, I really think films are funny. They're like either overly like trying too hard or like not funny and dark. But um I know that your background comes from doing like photography and you were Mm -hmm. in like a sketch comedy troupe. And I think that Mm -hmm. in our our generation, at least that's like a thing to be able to explore different mediums. Like me and Sam are both photographers, writers, and now we're doing this podcast. And I was just wondering like, is that something that was, I guess, a thing when you were in college? And if not, like, how do you think that has helped you or develop as an artist? I don't know if it was like a thing, like to do, like explore different things in a multi-hyphenate way. I don't know if it was like a thing when I was in college, because I don't know if there were as many like successful public personas who kind of were doing that. I was just reading about the photographer who just shot the Vanity Fair cover. Right. <laughs> he has like a million things going on. I don't think that that was as common, especially is this medium where it's very much jack of all trades in a way. You know, so many people come from different backgrounds like there was one person in my film school class who was like an opera director who mm. had like directed operas in Italy you know some people came from theater some people like had never done theater like had never written were actors like you know um I knew someone in school who like had gone to like uh Juilliard for acting and then like you know decided to to direct you know some people come at it very much from the written page So, I mean, film is definitely a medium where, you know, it helps, like, to have experience or at least some familiarity with, like, so many different areas because it really is a medium that pulls from all of these things. You know, it pulls from design, it pulls from music, editing, writing, like, drama, acting, like, all of these things. And you're going to bring whatever your actual personal experience is to it. 
I mean, you know, and directors are very different. Like some directors are very technical. Some directors are not technical at all, have never like, don't know anything about cameras, but you know, they're super great with actors. So it really, I think just depends. And the better, the better you can acquaint yourself with all of the different sort of aspects of the craft, I think hopefully the better filmmaker you'll be. Um, so yeah, I mean, it totally affected me, especially, I mean, the photography and the sketch comedy, both. The photography was probably the bigger one. Um, yeah, I mean, you didn't, you worked in um, fashion and beauty for a mm -hmm. bit before, right? And so like, did you, like, was filmmaking always sort of like in your mind or did that like career from more like photography oriented, like pivot to filmmaking? I would say filmmaking had been in my mind uh, for a long time. Like basically, so I'm from North Carolina and in North Carolina, uh, nobody works in film or like, yeah. not really. <laughs> and so saying you want to grow up and become a filmmaker, it's sort of like saying you want to grow up and become like a poet or something. Sort mm -hmm. of like who, who does that? It's not like, oh, you go to school and you get a job and then you're a film director. That's not a thing. Mm -hmm. So even though I always loved movies, it was a very um, roundabout path to get to movies because I didn't know how to do it. Like, there's no like how-to manual for like how to become like a director. Um, sometimes you just say you are and then people are like, okay, but <laughs> most of the time, no. All of those kinds of things, like doing the sketch comedy, doing the photography, you know, I had done a little bit of theater, um, you know, doing the internships, all of that stuff just kind of like led up to it. And I went to film school. And then after film school, how I ended up doing the fashion and beauty was really to pay rent. Like, you know, just like straight up, right? Like, I graduated from film school, I wanted to make a movie, but it's not like somebody's like, oh, here, let me give you like a million dollars. And then you can make your art like that doesn't, it doesn't happen that easily, usually. Um, never say never, but most of the time, it does mm -hmm. not happen that easily. Um, and so basically, I had been doing films, I had shorts, and um, the shorts and sort of my portfolio kind of got me a toehold into doing some commercial work. And it started small, like with some like stuff for Fashion Week for like, um, you know, like a few like small little like internet like things or whatever, you know, very like low budget. Um, but I was able to sort of build my, my reel and kind of like continue working on stuff. And while I worked on scripts, like pay my bills doing that kind of stuff. So that's sort of, you know, that's mm -hmm. sort of like the, the long and short of it, but you know, it takes a really long time sometimes. Um, it took me a long time to get a movie made. Yeah. A very long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like making, directing commercials is not a bad living at all. It's like, it's pretty fun, but right. it wasn't like, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes in the film is like that first scene where they're all in the kitchen and David's there and grandma's cooking and it seems like new neighbors just keep coming in and being yeah. pushed out. Um, I was wondering, how did you direct all the actors to interact with each other like that? And was it hard to introduce these new characters with all of this like drama and everything going on? <laughs> um, yeah, so my editor and I call that sequence knock knock. <laughs> That's what we call that whole like stretch. Um, yeah, I don't know if it was, it wasn't hard to direct. I mean, 
there were definitely like some things that I was looking for, like in terms of like creating the, you know, there's certain visual continuities, like with the door, like the shots of the door, like very similar. They keep kind of repeating um, to kind of tie them together. And, you know, I didn't really think that much about the different characters because, you know, in a way, like I feel like the structure of grandma in some ways is a little bit like, um, like the big Lebowski or something. Cause you know, she, there's like basically your main, your main hero. And then she just meets like all of these like interesting people kind of like on her journey. Like, uh, and I wanted to make each one of the people very memorable, like each character that she interacted with. Um, you know, whether it's the fortune teller or Benny, um, you know, or the neighbor, et cetera. So that was sort of just kind of how I like conceived of it. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah but that was, like, yeah. When they were tearing up her apartment, all I could think was like, when is the neighbor going to come back up? Like he definitely <laughs> stuck in my head the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there was, um, he was going to have a repeat perform, like a repeat like scene that we had to cut because of like schedule, because of budget and schedule. Um, originally, when they were getting rid of the body in the script, it was like, there was an elevator and a moped and the neighbor made a reappearance. <laughs> but we could not find a location with an elevator and my producer said we couldn't afford the moped, so I had to rewrite it. <laughs> with like those characters or just in general, like what what is a big inspiration for you? Like how do you get these ideas for any form of your art or mold these characters into 3D figures? I mean... I guess it depends on which character. So like grandma is probably, you know, she's the most complex character and she is really inspired by, I would say women in our life. So me and my co-writer Angela's life, you know, definitely a little inspiration from my mom, Angela's grandmother, many of the difficult women that we know. <laughs> that's, that's very much drawing from real life in a way. Although of course, like I kind of had the image of grandma with her cigarettes and like her whole thing, her whole, like kind of from the very beginning. Um, but, you know, that was like a long evolution of trying to think about how, so we always knew how she would react in a situation. I don't know if that makes sense. The character was always very clear to us in terms of like how she would respond to a situation. But in terms of like getting the nuance, like with the backstory of like what might have happened to make her that way and all that stuff, that kind of was like a longer evolution um, in the writing process. And trying to figure out scenes that would actually show that, but not be like, I don't know what I call them, like explaining monologue scenes. I hate those scenes like in movies where they're like, oh, there's like this like monologue about how like my husband died and that's the way I am, the way I am and like blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Someone died of cancer or something mm -hmm. like 50 years ago. Um, so how to like, how to show that depth and how to show um, also the ways that like people are not always predictable. They're sometimes act in contradictory, um, not helpful ways for themselves. And so we kind of were like looking also for scenes that kind of showed that. I don't know if that makes sense. With the smaller secondary characters, the side characters, I mean, we did a lot of research on gangs sort of in Chinatown, even though the movie is not realism at all. It's not really realistic. We um, read quite a few books and articles about kind of how the triads work and um, 
kind of there was some real life violence that was like pretty serious in the 90s for a while uh including one woman who was sort of like the inspiration for uh sister fong who was like on the fbi's like 10 most wanted list like back in the day in the 90s she made most of her money from like smuggling immigrants on boats um so like we we just read a lot of a lot of things and i think that helped us kind of take these colorful characters and then like even though they're only in one scene we kind of have this whole like backstory for everybody i don't know if that makes sense or like kind of world it's like i wanted it to seem like they existed outside of the confines of that one screen does that make sense like they would have a story that would be outside of the frame um and so hopefully we achieve that i don't know <laughs> it wasn't like that sappy like oh with the grandma like it wasn't like that sappy my husband died and now right. i feel like there was that one scene where she was like clutching on yeah. and realizing you know he didn't leave her anything but there was never that like pity monologue you know what i mean yeah. and i yeah. think it was very clear from the start like with the first scene she's literally smoking that cigarette like not giving any fucks and i think that was very clear like the image you wanted to portray of her and reminded me of my my own grandma sometimes yeah. she scares me <laughs> uh, yep <laughs> i think it might be universal maybe just like when you hit 80 you just don't have any fucks left to give I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Also, one other thing that I noticed was in the film, there's kind of this interchange between luck and fate in terms mm -hmm. of especially grandma, how she sees both of them. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us, like, I don't want to give away too much of the film, but how mm -hmm. that luck and fate dynamic you saw existing within the character of grandma. Yeah, I mean, that definitely comes from very much like my own life. I guess, and Chinese culture. So my mom is Buddhist and she's very superstitious. Um, although she won't, she doesn't claim to be superstitious, but I mean, it's like, we have never bought a house without considering the feng shui of the house <laughs> like, in all of those years. Like, even though I am like, you know, totally American and grew up very Western and think of myself as a rational person who believes in science, I still hear her voice in the back of my head whenever like, you know, um, some little decision comes up and I'm like, well, you know, there's no reason to tempt fate. You know, maybe, maybe she's right and I should like move this desk the other way and I should try to pick a room with like a whatever facing window, um, et cetera. Uh, so I think like that just sort of like, like seeped into sort of my life and the sort of like waters that I grew up in. Um, and it's something I've always felt very, um, like that I felt that there are a lot, of, a lot of contradictions in Chinese culture about it because at the same time that um, my mom is very superstitious, she's very much of like, I don't know, it's this weird duality between like work hard, make your own luck and uh, karma exists and if you do anything <laughs> bad it will like come back to bite you in the ass like it's kind of like they both exist in mm -hmm. this world that doesn't uh always make coherent sense and I sort of like wanted I guess to portray that that like grandma's very superstitious she believes in luck but her definition kind of bends to what is convenient for her at the moment mm -hmm. Even though she very much believes in fate and luck, she's still going to basically do whatever she can to make her own fate. I don't know yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely related to that. Like, 
I feel like I have some of that same like no matter what, how much I think it's about hard work and working hard, there's something that always tells me that any achievements are cause of something else. So yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Well, maybe it's like a little blend of both, right? You mm-hmm. have to work hard to put yourself in that lucky spot. Yeah, no, totally agree. But before we wrap things up, just wanted to ask, one, do you have a piece of advice for listeners out there who are... Um, in college or a little bit older than college on I guess pursuing their passions and art and do you have a film recommendation for quarantine ah that's hard film recommendation there's so many okay well we'll start with the first part advice um well if you want to make films or make anything really I think you just have to one just start making stuff I think you kind of learn by doing, I think the most. And like, you're never gonna be a writer unless you actually write kind of, and you're never gonna like make films unless you start making films, even if it's on a small scale or whatever, in whatever way you can. And the thing is, is like, you have to wanna do it. So you should be basically wanna do it before anybody will pay you to do it. And then once people start paying you to do it, then that's just kind of like icing on the cake, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I would say watch as much as you can just like learn your film history like learn what's out there and what other people have done and like because basically it's all been done and just it's some way or another mm-hmm. um, yeah and not just like American movies like watch like stuff from all over the world there's like really great stuff out there um, and in terms of a pandemic recommendation okay, <laughs> okay so I will give a shout out have you guys seen this movie called Baccarat I just wrote the review for Baccarat for our last newsletter, like literally last week. I just watched it. Okay, well, I fucking love it. I, yeah, it's kind of like a Quentin Tarantino movie, I but it's like sociopolitical, it. kind of, like in Brazil. I cannot yeah. believe it. Yeah. Oh my God. I feel like, yeah, well, I thought that movie was pretty badass and interesting. Um, and also as part of the whole virtual streaming thing, so you would support movie theaters. Yeah, so that would be my pandemic recommendation for the moment. I also really want to see, I haven't seen it yet, but The House and the Hummingbird is like mm. this Korean movie that's supposed to be really good. Yeah, I've I haven't mean seen to it yet. That. That's, that's mean... kind of on my list that I want to see. Yeah, but Baccarat's pretty, pretty great. It did yeah. have a very like journalistic feel, yeah. It was like, it's very social political, like colonizers, like, I don't know, it was really cool. I had no idea that that movie was going to be like that. It was amazing, I agree, yeah. Spoilers, but I really liked all the naked people in that movie. <laughs> they were hilarious. Did you have you did you watch it, Sam? Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Sam, seen it. get on our level. <laughs> Come on. You gotta check it out. I will. I will for sure. <laughs> I mean, didn't I entice you with naked people? There are naked people <laughs> who are hilarious. Naked people and <laughs> random, <laughs> random UFOs just came out of nowhere. I was like, I where? like my type of movie. Yeah. <laughs> Quinn Tarantino, Brazil, sociopolitical UFOs, naked yeah. people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast um, and for enforcing my recommendation for Baccarat. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, um, it was really great to chat with you guys. I'm really glad that you liked the movie and I hope other people see it. Thanks, guys. Take care of yourself during the pandemic. Yeah, I you too. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Two Virgins. 
We hope you enjoyed getting to know director Sazy Seeley and check out her movie, Lucky Grandma. Yeah. You can listen to this episode on quarantinecontent.com or on our weekly newsletter, The Q. See you next week.